As they are making their way back to their seats, I would encourage you to go and turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, and this is going to be, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, on page 1062, and as always, um, we want to let you know that if you need a Bible that you can read and is accurate, uh, this is our gift to you. We these have been provided not for just decoration, not just for Sunday use. That We want them to be used on Sundays if they're here, but we want them to be used every day if you need a Bible. It's our gift to you. Uh, but it's on page 1062 if you're looking in your uh, in the Pew Bibles. It will also be on the screen behind me, but I always encourage people to have their copy of God's Word, whether it's uh, in printed book form or whether it's in digital form. Either way, um, it's good for us to spend time reading about Jesus, seeing who he is, what he has done, and and what he says. And we're continuing our series. We're on part four of our series called Jesus is Better. Now, we've talked about this over the last couple weeks. And and to say that, we understand Jesus is better in the church context. But going out beyond these walls, that message seems a little rude, seems a little prideful, seems a little boastful, seems even maybe filled with hubris and arrogance. But... We are not saying that statement, Jesus is better, without a solid foundation. We're not sharing it without a solid source. Or at least we shouldn't. The Bible has given us sufficiently, authoritatively, everything we need to say with confidence within our soul and from our soul to anyone who will hear, yes, Jesus is better. There is no one like Him. There is no God but Him. And this is the assurance that we have as people of faith, because this is the word that God has graciously given us. And today, we're going to look at this unusual, we'll call it a paradox. You might know what a paradox is. Maybe you've heard of this word before. It's where there's two things that are innumerably different, and yet in the same moment. They're they're indescribably different, and yet they're brought together, and it just does not seem like that would even be possible. This is the idea of a paradox. And today we're going to look at how God, the God who speaks the cosmos, the God who sustains everything by His powerful Word, this same God is Jesus. When we look at Jesus, we're seeing God. And when we're seeing God, we're seeing Jesus. We're looking at this one. And we're going to see how He took on human nature. It doesn't seem like it's even possible. In fact, some faiths that are out there, some philosophies that are out there, That's one of their biggest hang-ups. How could God take on human nature? How could the infinite one become something finite in a moment? But we're going to see how He took on that human nature so that He would be our Savior and our priest. And how those words are not meant to be taken for granted. And that how, because of that, He is able to deliver us from sin and death. So, as we are looking at that specifically... With the idea, with the the teaching from the Bible that Jesus is better, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we honor God in the reading of His Word. We're going to be looking at chapter 2 of the letter to the Hebrews, verses 10 through 18. And here we go. The Word of the Lord, inspired by the Holy Spirit and preserved for us today, says this, For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God for whom and through whom all things exist 
should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in Him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. So that through His death, He might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil. And free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that He does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, He had to be like His brothers and sisters in every way, so that He could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since He Himself also has suffered when He was tempted, He is able to help those who are tempted. Lord Jesus, we have heard Your Word spoken. We have read it with our eyes and may it have been saturated with our ears. May it be felt in our hearts today. May it engage our minds. May we be prepared to move with these bodies that You have created. And Lord, I pray that because it is Your Word that we would not seek to abuse it, manipulate it, twist it, or or tweak it for our own misuse. But it would be appropriately applied, piercing to the depths of our souls and transforming our lives. Not because of our strength, but because of You being the source of these words that are gifted to Your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. may be seated. So as I said, we are looking at this series, Jesus is Better. It is a series that is focused in on the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, sometimes people have questions about where we are in the Bible, why we're studying that particular book, why this book is relevant to you and I. Well, when we look at this, we we see what it has said to us, and that's always important. It's never a good idea just to take someone's theoretical idea about what the Bible says because there are many things that people say the Bible says that the Bible does not, in fact, say. But we've seen what it says to us, but then we need to look and say, what does it mean? Well, to find meaning, it's a, it's one of those things where we look at, all right, well, who was the author at the time? I mean, who was the person that penned it? We know God is the inspirer of the entire word, but who was the author? Uh, who was the audience? Who was the aim? And and while we don't know the author's name, we know he was a second generation believer. He had received this from faithful men and women and was passing it on. His audience that he's writing to, uh, it's a letter to the Hebrews. He's writing them a letter. He's kindly giving them news that they need to hear. Some people believe he was writing to Jewish Hebrew people in general. Some people believe he was writing to people that once were Hebrew priests and were struggling with whether or not they should go back to the, the old way, the old law, not, not what they had had in Jesus, 
but going back to the old way and, and forsaking Jesus, neglecting Jesus. And, and the writer is proclaiming, no, no, the old way had its time, had its place. But even as good as it was, even though it was a provision for a short period of time, it was an insufficient one. It was an incomplete one. That God in His covenant promises has now given us the covenant provision for those promises. That there's something new, there's something better, there's something more perfect. And if there is something new, and if there is something better, and it is more perfect than what was before, and if what was before was incomplete and insufficient, why would we seek to go back to an old way of life? Now that's something that's relevant for us today. That applies to us today because we have these struggles at times. What do we say about Jesus? Are, are, are we wanting to view Him in an old way of life as if He's uh, kind of a minor optional character in our life? Someone that's non-essential at times, maybe essential on certain days of the week, but for the rest we just kind of put Him in our pocket. And we want to go back to the old, incomplete, insufficient way of life. Some of us may have grown up in traditions that were very legalistic and, and very works-based and, and, and saying that your salvation, your life was dependent on your own way of work and, and your own actions and behaviors and words. We may struggle with the idea of wanting to go back there and trying to live by list instead of living by the one who gives life. So here, the author is trying to tell us that we must trust in what God has provided. In who God is through Christ Jesus. And what it means to live in the light of this more excellent, truer, better, perfect covenant that is given to us only by Jesus. The one who is far superior than anyone else. And to do this, the the book of Hebrews, it takes us through a, this, this viewpoint of what Jesus did to come to the earth. It's something that we must pay attention to. It's easy for us to, to kind of discount. It's easiest for us to drift and be distracted from it. That's why over the, when you're reading these letters, it's important not to just try to block out something because it begins with a big number or a little number, but to read it in the, 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 the span of the whole. This is a whole letter. And so when we were here last week, we were looking at the beginning part of chapter 2, when the letter was first given to the churches in Greek. Those numbers, 2 and verse 1, those, those weren't there. Those were added later for our benefit, just so we can say, hey, I'm trying to follow along. Can you tell me where it is? It's kind of like adding page numbers to a book. I'm not saying turn to the page that begins with they. Um, it helps you to kind of find out where we're looking. And so here, the writer is saying there's an, an attention that needs to be fixed on Jesus. And if we don't, we can easily neglect the prize and the promise that we have. You ever neglected a prize or a gift? You ever received something really, really good, but you kind of handled it a little while, and then later on it just got put on a shelf, or maybe put in the garage... And you thought it was awesome at the time. And then you, years later or months later, however long later, maybe a span of time, you come and, and it piques your interest again. And all of a sudden you, you get it down like, why did I ever put this up on the shelf? Why did I ever hide this away in the garage? It is so good to have. 
But it was so easy for us to also be distracted and think it was no big of a deal. And that's a little something when it comes to Jesus. In comparison to Jesus, who is far greater. And yet, with Jesus, we have a tendency to do the same things, to act out the same way. But once again, the writer of Hebrews, holding up that Jesus is far greater, he presents to us the case, some some reasonings why we should not neglect Jesus, why we should not see the one who gave so much for us and then say, yeah, that was okay, but you're not really essential right now. First of all, it shows us, he goes in to say, Jesus is the source of salvation. Now, you may say that point on the back screen or something like that and think, well, that is not mind-blowing. Of course, I know Jesus is the source of salvation. I come to church. I go to my connection group. I, I send my kids to Awana. Of course, I know that. But I would, I would ask you to consider this. Of whether you know that as a general statement or whether you know it as absolute application in your life. I mean, just right there where you are, between you and the Lord, examine yourself and, and say, what is it I, I absolutely put my trust in? More, more than just my words. What does my life say that I put my trust in? That I say, this is what's going to be good for me. This is what's going to sustain me. This is who is going to provide for me. This is what's going to last and be of value. And whenever you ask that question between you and the Lord, are you coming up with the same answer? Because we can say many things with our words, but our lives may not absolutely fulfill that. And, and, and presenting the case to ask us to consider this, it's, it's showing us why Jesus is the source of our salvation. In verse 10 it says that it was absolutely, entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. In other words, that in Jesus, who He is as the One who holds everything together, whether we think it's a a step down, a, a, a letting down from His glory to do this for us, it was entirely appropriate for Him to do it. Why? Because He was the only One that could. The only One that could. We in our sinfulness, we in our distractions and our drifting and all the other things that are a part of our fallenness, we never could. It, it would never be fully appropriate for us to do it. While we were created in God's image and, and that was good, we, we suffer from the effects of the fall. So if anyone could stand in the gap, if anyone could be the person, who could that be? And that would be Jesus. But I find it so interesting in my own life, and maybe you... See this in your own life as well. How sometimes we question the absolute sufficiency of Jesus to do what we couldn't. You ever find yourself in conflict trying to say, all right, God, I I know you did this, but I feel like I need to add this to it. I feel like I need to be this person. Because maybe, maybe somewhere in the doubt of my mind, in the doubt of my heart, Maybe I don't feel like you absolutely are sufficient. 
Or maybe I look at my life and say, well, if you are, why do I still struggle like this? The issue is Jesus' sufficiency for us. You see, we're going to continue to struggle in our frailty and our fallenness. But that doesn't mean that Jesus' sufficiency isn't good enough. If He's the one that speaks and holds everything together with His cosmos, then we can trust His promises. I still hold you. Even though you fall, even though you neglect, even though you drift, He still holds you and I. And to prove the lengths and the depths of this sufficiency, it says that Jesus also was made to suffer. That it was costly for Jesus. This sufficiency wasn't something that Jesus considered kind of a, an offshoot thing, like a minor detail. It wasn't like this was a pittance or a pocket change for God. The grace that He provided was not cheap. It was incredibly costly. And it was perfected. Perfected through His sufferings. So when we look to the cross, as cruel as it may be to look at the cross, what we need to see in there is not, oh, woe is me, or oh, woe is Jesus. But wow, the incredible depths that God would go to show His love. To show that this was absolutely not some chief offhand type of rescue. It was absolute total goodness. Grace given to us. And because Jesus is the source of our salvation, He's sufficient for it. His sufferings perfected it. We also see that He is, through that, the one who is continually sanctifying you and me. The sanctification of Jesus is, is proof of Him being the source and the sufficiency. I, I asked you a minute ago, how many of you struggle with feeling like you need to add something to what Jesus has done? You don't need to add anything to what Jesus has done for your salvation. I just want you to know that. What Jesus has done, who Jesus is, is absolutely sufficient, absolutely perfect. And it was demonstrated through His sufferings. But when we feel that conflict, when we feel those convictions, that is Jesus saying, I have completed salvation for you, but I am working to make salvation practical in you. That you're not having to add anything. So don't feel guilty or don't feel accused by the enemy saying you've got to add something to Jesus. But whenever that conviction comes, know that it's Him saying, this is the work I have done in you and I'm trying to express it in your life. It's complete, but it needs to come into practice with who you are. It's not adding to your salvation. It is saying salvation is there and being evident. And what does Jesus also do? He says, not only am I working in you, but as the source of your salvation, I've done something absolutely incredible. And when I look at these words, I... I Even sometimes myself, I'm astounded by them. That it says, this is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Have you thought about it? What Jesus has done is such a grand adoption that as He is the Son, the second part of the Trinitarian Godhead, 
He says, I have done this for all of these. And now consider all of these. Father, the first person of the Godhead. Consider them adopted as brothers and sisters, co-heirs with me. That doesn't mean you're equal to Jesus, but it means that you are adopted and share in the same family. Isn't that amazing? I, I don't I don't understand how a God so holy would do that. Because when I look at my life, I'm like, there is no way, no reason I belong in that crowd. You ever found yourself in a place where you're like, yeah, this is not my people. You ever found that? Isn't that awkward? It's totally weird. Maybe it's a friend, you know, the friends of your spouse, or you're, you're going to some co-worker's place and you know your co-worker, but then everybody else, you're like, yeah, I don't belong here. This, this conversation, I know nothing about it. This decor, I couldn't tell you anything about it. What's playing on the music? I don't even know that. I don't belong here. And that's an absolute right way to feel when it comes to Jesus. But it's not meant to put you in a place of guilt. It's meant to put you in a place of awe. You invited someone that absolutely doesn't belong here out of your love to belong here. And you're transforming my life. Even though I know I don't belong in this crowd, you're transforming me by the sufficiency of your salvation through the suffering that you gave once and for all. You're sanctifying me and saying, yeah, you don't belong here. But because of me, you do. And I'm making you look like it. I'm transforming your life, working in you, so that my salvation is not just something that saves you for that one day whenever you die, but for the every day. This is Jesus as the source of salvation. This is why He is better and why we must pay attention and not neglect that salvation. And then He goes a step further and and, and highlights a little bit more about what Jesus did by infiltrating the world with his incarnation. Big words, I know. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's hard for us to summarize in one word, Jesus, fully God, fully man. The only way we can really summarize it is the word incarnation. That this, this person was also full, fully God. He held two positions in one. Two complete statuses in one. And as that person, he chose to walk among us. That's why the Apostle John makes such a big deal that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. And then it says the same one who was God and was with God, that, that hard to wrap our minds around identity that Christians hold so dear that the Trinity exists. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all one God. He came to earth. And the book of John says, He, the Word, became flesh and He made His dwelling among us. But what did He do while He dwelled among us? It says that He displayed His deity. We, we can witness the display of His deity. Even as one who is fully man, we can see that He was fully God. By what He did and what He spoke and His character and everything about Him. Verse 14, it says this, Now, since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus also shared in these. It's already highlighted that He was the one for whom and through whom all things exist. He's God. 
but he saw the necessity to display his deity in the midst of humanity. Holding both at the same time. And it was entirely appropriate for him to do it because those ones he loved, the ones he were going to save, they were made of flesh and blood. So he was going to come and be flesh and blood. The sacrifice for sins required flesh and blood. So he was going to be flesh and blood. So he would be their sacrifice. It's, it's, it's amazing when we see what the Jesus coming and being here for us, what that really means. But when we see Jesus, we can witness the fullness of His deity. It's a part of His DNA. But we can also behold the disarming of the devil. It says that so through His death, He might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. So let's look at two parts of that. First of all is the disarming of the devil. Now I want to ask you a question. I know sometimes when we hear the word devil, or the devil, putting the in front of it, you know, kind of like that school down south. Um, you know, when we try to do that, we, we sometimes put these red alarms up. Oh, he's going to talk about the devil. Tune out. Done. Or, in doing so, we, we kind of underestimate the topic of the enemy. Or, all of a sudden, radars go up. I must zoom in, pay attention, everything. Because we have this overestimation of the devil. And here we see what Jesus does to disarm both of those. One, that the devil absolutely had the ramifications for sin. He was holding those. That not only was there the death of the physical life, but because of the sin and the default setting of the sinner to go to hell and be destroyed through eternity, there was the second death. The devil had that in his hands. That at least he could claim that victory. These people are sinners. They are created in the image of God and yet fallen. And I hate them. I want to steal Kill and destroy them. And death, the cause of our sin, the punishment that, that God poured out, the devil could always hold says, I've got that for them. But by Jesus coming, the severity that we should never underestimate as far as death, Jesus disarms it and says, no longer do you have to live in fear of death because the death I died, it takes care of that second death. In fact, it imputes, it, it imbues you, it gives you, it overflows to you life. And in doing so, it disarms the very thing that the devil held for fear. He disarmed him. And so when we face these times where we may feel like I need to underestimate the devil... We need to not do that. Because there's still a world in need of Jesus. That the threat the enemy holds on them is still all too real. Don't underestimate the enemy's work in other people's lives. Or your life if you're not a believer. 
If you're not a follower of Christ, the, the enemy still has that, ha-ha, that one still has a debt of death, kill, steal, destroy on their life. Don't underestimate that. And don't let that be a distracted distraction that we drift away from or that we neglect that causes us to look and say, the message of Jesus beyond these walls is a non-essential. Because that's underestimating the enemy's foothold. But don't overestimate it either. Don't look beyond those walls and say, I'm too scared of that. Because the message that Jesus has given us is said, I have disarmed that enemy so that you may go out in victory and share the message that gives freedom to those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. And when we look at Jesus, we need to see that He is indeed the source of salvation and His coming to earth wasn't just so we could celebrate Christmas and put up a tree. It wasn't just so we could hide eggs at Easter. It wasn't just so we could come into an air-conditioned building in America and sing songs that we like and enjoy. It was so that He would accomplish the display of His deity so that we could say, we have seen Jesus and because we've seen Jesus, we've seen God. It was because He would disarm the devil, the thing that held our fears, the enemy that was seeking to destroy. He disarmed Him. And He delivered our lives. For everyone who believes in Him, who trusts in Him, He removes the debt of slavery. He removes the, the, the guilt of death. He removes the punishment for sin, that eternal punishment. This is His coming and what it accomplishes. So let us never discount what Jesus did coming. And let us also be with hope because if this is what He did in the first coming, the Bible says He's coming back. Man, if He accomplished that in Act 1, I can't wait for Act 2. It's going to be a good day. That should give me some excitement. Lastly, it says that Jesus is the provision by His priesthood. That Him coming, Him being suitable to, to be the sufficient One for us, Him being the coming One who displayed His deity among us, shows us also that He holds that office of priest. The Bible speaks of Jesus holding three offices. That of prophet, the mouthpiece of God, with every word He uttered being the Word of God. To being priest, the mediator between God and man. And king, the ruling one. And we may wonder sometimes about this idea of priests. Some of you may have come from a Catholic background, and that may be your closest viewpoint of priesthood, where you had to go to someone because of the compelling conviction of your sin, and you had to go to this someone to be a mediator between you and God. That, 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 that bridge between you and God was a span too far. There had to be someone there in the middle. And in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish tradition that was built upon the Old Testament, that was absolutely a part of the picture. The distance between God and man was far too big of a bridge, far too big of a span for us to cross. And so there was this mediator each year, the high priest that would go in and he would offer these sacrifices, these atonements that we could not provide ourselves. And for this priest... He had to atone for his own sin. He had to be very careful about his own life. He wasn't perfect. 
He wasn't without sin, but he had to make sure he was making an offering for his own self so that whenever he made an offering for the people, it would be accepted and provisional for a time period. But then he would have to keep doing it over and over again. He would keep have to making his own atonement for his own sin and then making atonement for others. It was a yearly process because it was impossible to fully remove the penalty. Even that mediator status, as good and as a gift from God as it was, it was not complete. It was insufficient. And meanwhile, man stayed in their sin. But what makes Jesus the greater provision, the greater promise, what makes Jesus better is that He is both priest and propitiation. Now that's a big churchy word, it's a big theological word, but I want to get into what it is in a second. First of all, He chooses to do this. He chooses to demonstrate His mercy by coming. And I want to let you know, that is a big deal. That when Jesus came, He's bridging a gap and saying, I do not consider giving mercy to you and I, and to you and you and you and from those in that present time to future generations until I return. I do not consider that too big of a thing. It's a huge thing. But I don't consider it beyond me. The pardon that we need, Jesus provides. He is merciful. He willingly chooses to give mercy. But also, He is faithful. Going back to the idea of the high priest, they had to go back every year, but Jesus, He never once sinned. He was the completely faithful high priest. He never had to make an atonement for his own sin. And so when he comes in to make this offering, he stands and saying, I am the holy high priest that never has sinned. I do not have to make a single offering for myself. This is the glory that is being looked upon at the cross. But at the same time, as the one who absolutely has no sin and makes the offering for his people... He doesn't provide a temporary offering. He says, I will also be the one on the table. You see, the priest going in in the Old Testament, he didn't have to go in and worry. He had to worry that, you know, this might cost me my life if I'm not, you know, purified enough. But he had never had to say, well, when I get there in front of the altar of the Lord, I'm going to have to kill myself and lay myself down. I'm going to have to give my life right here. He never had to do that. Never had to worry about that. That was never even on the table. But Jesus, being the priest, He says, not only am I willing to stand before them as the perfect mediator of God and man, but I'm absolutely going to be the offering on the, on the table as well. I'm absolutely going to be the one that lays my life down. I'm going to be the propitiation. The propitia- propitiation means a perfect suitable, appropriate offering for atonement. A perfect, suitable offering for atonement. It represents our guilt. It represents our fallenness. It represents all these. In the Old Testament, that's what they did. They offered a propitiation. But those weren't perfect ones. Jesus is 
perfect and that he stands as the high priest faultless and he lays himself down as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But that was not the end. That was not the end. I love the hope that we find in verse 18 that shows us that the Jesus we serve was not a came once, died once, left behind ancient person that we speak of, but that he still lives today. Because he suffered and was tempted, he is also able to help those who are tempted. See, the role of a priest is not only to be the mediator, but to help provide direction. To be the one to help provide absolution, but also the one to help provide direction in the meantime. And what Jesus does is because He died and yet rose again, He says, I am there. I recognize what you went through. I recognize how you suffer. I recognize temptation. It wasn't that He had to become man to to understand that. God has always understood everything. But when we look at Him and see what He went through, we say, yeah, you do recognize it. We have assurance of that. He says, there I am there to help all those who suffer. I am there to help those who are tempted. Because I never want you to think I'm a merciless high priest. I never want you to think I'm a faithless high priest. I want you to know I'm the one that lived perfectly for you, died perfectly for you, am merciful in all things for you, am faithful to walk with you, and am helpful. That when you come to me and you look to me, I am the one who will never leave you or forsake you. I will walk with you. I will be the anchor of your hope. Your assurance. So when we look at Jesus, what we see is, it's easy for us to look at Him and say, yeah, wise guy, great teacher, incredible martyr, held up philosophical dude. Absolutely good. But the Bible says those things are true. But Jesus is much more. His coming means much more. His provision means much more. And the great salvation that we are never to neglect means so much more. So much more. Not because it's such a good idea, but because it came from a great person. The greatest of all who has provided for you, the one who is better. So when we walk out these doors this week, when we, when we go to our vocations, when we go to our homes, may our life reflect that this Jesus that we hold is indeed better. He's worth living for. He's worth learning from. He's worth serving. He's worth singing about. He's worth sharing. Because He too, just as He did for us to deliver us from the power of death, from the dominion of the devil, and in displaying His deity, we too can share that with a world that needs the same. And that is exactly what we're called to do. And we're not going to do it with pride and arrogance. We're doing it with confidence and boldness. The Bible gives us the difference between the two. Share it well. Share it loud. Share it. And be thankful that it was shared to you as you share it with others. Let's pray. Lord God, today as we come to this moment of pause and reflection, I I pray that You would help us to be captivated once more by the gravity that You, the living God, the Almighty, stepped into earth. And that is not something to be taken lightly. That is not something to be put on a shelf and try to come back to later. 
That is something that transforms everything. You are the one who changes our lives. Because you're the one who gave us life to begin with. The reason we live and breathe is because of you sustaining us by your powerful word. The reason we have salvation and new life, second life, being born again, is because you made it known to us and our eyes were opened. We owe it all to you. And I pray that in this moment where we can respond, I pray we would do it appropriately. For some of us, that appropriate means we need to spend some more time on our knees humbled at who you are and what it means to live for you. For some of us in this room, it means a a newfound fervor to go share in faith and confidence and boldness who you are with those that need it. For some of the people in this room, it means a transformation of the home life, the work life. And for some in this room, it's very possible it means coming to you for the first time and saying, God, I now know who you are. In this life that you created, the life that I've been trying to live but have not been able to, I lay it down at your feet and I ask for your salvation over it. I ask for your peace upon it. Not because of who I am, but because of who you are, Jesus. Whatever needs to be done in this time, God, I pray that you would do it. That we would recognize your direction over it. And we would yield. Have your way, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.